The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. I'm joined by the journalist Lise Hand and Mark Hennessy, the Ireland and Britain editor with the Irish Times, to go through the news this morning and um, going to one of the stories that's uh, on the front of a lot of the papers. There's a lot of coverage in respect of Ian Bailey and uh, an analysis of his likely guilt or innocence in relation to the death of Sophie Tuscan de Plante and also the type of man that he was. But there is breaking news that his flat or his apartment was, I don't know if raided was the correct term, but was searched by the uh, Gardaí in the, the cold case investigation in relation to the death of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier and a number of items were taken from that flat. With us is Barry Roach, who's Southern correspondent of the Irish Times. Good morning, Barry. Can you fill us in? Indeed, Anton. Um, as you say, Gardaí yesterday searched the flat of Ian Bailey, who, as listeners will know, passed away last Sunday when he collapsed on the street in Barrick Street in uh, Bantry and died from a suspected heart attack. But at 10am yesterday morning, a team of detectives based in Bantry, assisted by officers from uh, the Serious Crime Review team from Dublin, who have been down working with them since uh, the middle of 2022 and reviewing the original file, they carried out a search of uh, Mr. Bailey's flat on Barrick Street under warrant uh, and they went in at 10am and were there till 5pm sifting through his belongings. They seized a large quantity of personal items including several notebooks with his writings as well as his mobile phone, his laptop, hard drives and memory sticks and I understand some other electronic storage devices. They've all been catalogued, put into evidence bags, storage boxes, uh, brought over to Bantry Garda Station across the square from his flat on ba- Barrick Street and uh, the investigation team there and the serious crime review team, uh, they've set up an incident room. So the uh, forensic, they also took, I should say, some uh, personal items such as combs and razors, which will be sent to Forensic Science Ireland to the laboratory in Dublin to enable Gardaí obtain a more detailed profile, DNA profile, than that developed from samples that he gave voluntarily in 1997. And then, as I said, the mobile phones, the laptops and other electronic storage devices, they'll be sent to the Computer Crime Investigation Unit in Cork City to see if they contain anything that might assist the Cold Kills Review Team in their uh, investigation. Well, we asked the Gardaí about that investigation and they confirmed, as you say, that the, the uh, search was done under warrant in the property in Bantry, but they say they, as as it is part of an ongoing investigation, on Garda Shea will not be commenting further or commenting further at this time. Are we clear, Barry, whether or not, I mean, if this was a search under warrant, does that suggest that the warrant was pre-existing before Ian Bailey's death and it is coincidence that the raid happened post-mortem or is, was there an advantage to the Garda in the fact that he was deceased? And pre-post-mortem, uh, but I suspect that once he passed away, obviously Gardy would be anxious to see, as they say, they're approaching this as a fresh pair of eyes or ca- trying to carry out a full review of everything. And obviously he remained or remained a chief suspect uh, as part of that investigation. Certainly, Dr. Gardy, they believed he was the best suspect they had for the case. But uh, once he passed away, then obviously they would be anxious to go and obtain whatever they could from, if there was anything of relevance in his belongings, then I think it was always going to be the case that once he passed away, they were going to go to a district court judge and obtain a warrant and go in there. So they've moved quite quickly in one sense because he only passed away last Sunday and he was cremated on Tuesday. So they're in, in within, they'd have got the warrant, I'd imagine, on Thursday. So they were in there yesterday. So it's all moving at a pace, as it were. And obviously they're making no official comment. Are you getting any sense unofficially as to whether or not they found anything of use? Um, I'm not getting a sense of that yet. It's very early because apparently he was a, a huge hoarder uh, and had a huge amount of stuff in the in the flat. Or it's basically it's a bed, set, a bedroom, kitchenette, uh, and um, bathroom, uh, and a dining area. Sorry, my apologies. Separate bathroom and, and shower and toilet. But uh, he apparently kept almost everything in terms of going back to cuttings from his own journalistic career in the UK back in the 1980s. 
and he seemed to have kept those. I'm, I'm not sure to what extent they were kept in an organised fashion, but he also had a huge collection of. Uh, we knew he was a music fan. He was big into uh, his Dylan and his Leonard Cohen. He's a huge collection of CDs, and actually I was talking and DVDs as well because I was talking to him just before Christmas. Uh, and coming up to the anniversary, and I was asking him how he was going to spend Christmas Day, and he said that uh, he'd got a new air fryer. He was going to try that out, and he'd got a new DVD player, and he was going to. Um, watch something I can't remember what movie he told me he was going to watch and then he was going to do some writing over Christmas so that was his plan for Christmas where he, he was there alone in the in the flat so there's a huge amount of stuff there to be gone through um, they didn't take any of his clothing uh, and uh, nor did they take as I say any of his CDs or DVDs and they didn't take any of his wooden carvings because he had brought those with him since he left uh, separated from Jules Thomas in uh, March 21. They had been living, as listeners would be aware, together in a relationship in the prairie, in the Scotland Scholar, for almost 30 years. So there was a lot of stuff there as it were to bring with him. He moved around a bit. He was in Lingariff initially when he left uh, Jules. Uh, I think he probably spent the best part of a year there. And then he'd been over 18 months or so in this flat in Bantry, which was quite central uh, or quite close to the centre of the town. Barry, thank you very much for that. That is Barry Roach, Southern Correspondent of the Irish Times. And on, on the topic of his uh, former partner, Jules Thomas, Lee's hand, there's an interesting piece in uh, one of the papers today, an interview with Jules Thomas, asking, uh, among other things, why she didn't leave. And as I understand it, she, she says that she more or less gritted her teeth and stayed with him so as not to make people think that he was guilty of the murder by virtue of her leaving him. Yeah, her, it's an extraordinary... Their whole relationship is quite quite extraordinary. Um and that's ex- that is exactly what she said, um, because the question was, why did you stay with him? And of all the answers, you know, it, it's quite sad, actually. You know, it, it's it shows that she felt some kind of loyalty. <clears throat> um, even Which is though, extraordinary in the context of the physical violence that he subjected well, her to. That was the extraordinary thing, because, you know, details <clears throat> had come out previously um, of the of the physical abuse that had been inflicted on her and some very graphic descriptions, eyewitness accounts of the state in which she was left after he had, after he essentially battered her, and um, so I think it you know it it just shows I think just sort of the level of dysfunction that surrounded him and like everything in his orbit, um, and you know. I, yeah, I think everybody would just wish the best for her that that she can, you know, that she can kind of move on with her life because it's quite clear that this story itself isn't going to die with his death. Like this, this shows no sign of going away. Does it show any sign of resolving? Because obviously the fact of his death means people can now openly speculate about whether or not he actually did kill Sophie Descon de Plantier. But it doesn't get us any further in getting a hard answer to that question. No, it doesn't. And, you know, Basics uh, still remain the same. The uh, Garda investigation in the 90s was a car crash. Um, a whole variety of mistakes made from uh, beginning to end. Probably the same mistakes uh, wouldn't happen today. There's no doubt that things have vastly improved in the years since. Um, the search uh, this week, you know, it, it you always have to be a bit slow about commenting on a process when you're not inside the door looking at how the process is working out. But I can't be the only person who's a bit surprised that they're uh, raiding his IT files uh, after his death uh, rather than before and diaries and stuff like that. I, you know, I mean, why would that not have uh, been investigated at some point? Although I suppose one be, of the issues they made... There may, may be, be very prosaic explanations for that. But. 
But in that, that documentation, one of the things that I understand that, that characterised Ian Bailey is that his his writings and statements in relation to this case have been all over the map, admitting guilt and declaring innocence depending on who you're talking to at what time. Yeah. So to what degree do they find truth in his own personal diaries? How do you know uh, what's true and what's don't. not? They probably don't. And I can see why they've seized them now. I would just be slightly puzzled as to why it wasn't they, they weren't seized previously. There may be, as I say, very uh, good reasons for that, but... The, from a civilian's point of view, they seem a bit hard to understand and it isn't going to to bring any closure. The reality is that everybody will have uh, their own view as to whether Ian Bailey was guilty or not. Jude Thomas says uh, she believes he was innocent. Everything I saw about the case uh, going back to the 90s, I would have a different view. You know, my opinion doesn't matter one way or the other. Um, from what I knew of him, he was egotistical, he was vain, he was narcissistic, he had a proven record for violence against women. Um, he's not somebody uh, that uh, the rest of us need to uh, be indulging. In. No, and the latter by his own admission, some of his diary is printed, I think, in The Independent today, and he talks about his his love of drugs and drink and how it, quotes, led him to violence, as opposed to taking direct active uh, culpability for it himself. Anyway, we will see where that investigation gets us and we'll wait and, and obviously come back to it in the coming weeks if the Gardaí uh, release any further information. The one thing that is making the papers a lot today <laughs> is RTE and maybe I am wrong in this. I get the sense there is RTE fatigue about the place. Are people now fed up, Lise, with stories about RTE? Well, I think I think people are more absolutely befuddled and bemused that they've they've managed to stretch it out as long. I mean, they could nearly turn this into a musical. I mean, we might even see this someday. Or T the musical. And do you know what Bobby Sella Somewhere a Paul Howard sense. is typing you furiously. Know, probably. I mean, if you look at the, the level of interest in the uh, in the Oireachtas committees, uh, there might be a winner on there. Um, and, you know, I think uh, sometimes with these stories where there's a huge amount of um, you know, opposing opinions, a lot of kind of facts, stats, big, uh, you know, accountancy reports. People hone in on something that's kind of, you know, understandable. And I think the sort of the whole story around the musical is is the one that a lot will, will radiate out from because people can understand that because anybody who's ever put on anything or, you know, been involved in anything where you somebody is hauling you in to, to look at the accounts and say, why are you spending that? You know, where's that money going? And, you know, when you, when you read... It's very simple to see all the profligacy, all the patch protecting, all the hubris boiled down into the musical story. Because, you know, even before it got off the ground, it was quite clear that it wasn't selling tickets and they'd already put a huge amount of money into it. And yet there was no one there to kind of haul somebody and say, we're pulling the plug on this now. So I think Although some of the coverage today suggests that that is because those who should have known didn't in some instances that yes. it wasn't brought sufficiently to the board and that those who did know didn't do anything when they should have. Precisely. And I think this is this is what makes that, the, the I think, the the item of this that people can really grasp and really understand the wider dysfunction in RTE and just the wider arrogance of, of and the, the kind of, you know, one set of people who just feel they could do anything they wanted with impunity and didn't have to answer for it. And then, of course, as usual, the grunts getting it in the neck. Um, so, I, you know, seen through the prism of that, I think it makes the RT story still very interesting and relevant to people. And the numbers, Mark, are huge. I mean, we're looking at, what, a loss of 2.2 million in total, is it? We are, but, I mean, the, the RT musical... I can't be the only person who doesn't doubt the story's importance, but I'm bored and weary <laughs> of its prominence. Uh, at two million, you know, the vast majority of theatre productions fail. Uh, 
It was, I mean, the first time I, I heard the idea, I thought it, it, it struck me as an interesting idea, even if it wasn't one that I would have gone to myself. Um, it, the, the manner in which it was managed was a car crash. It's representative of other managerial car crashes that were going on, and there it has an importance in and of itself. Um, however, there is an issue about the scale of coverage. You know, this was first 10 minutes of the 6-1 news uh, on Thursday night, I think. Um, it is not the... Just sit on that mic a bit, Mark. Sorry. It is not the, the most important uh, story uh, in, uh, in, in the state to justify that kind of coverage. Uh, well, is that a sense, presumably, within RTE? Of, no, it is. Well, we, we don't want to be seen to be no, ignoring yeah, and therefore we fronted up like a Jesuitical yeah, referee. RTE are into a Martin de Porres uh, scale of self-flagellation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I can see why they, why they do it. But frankly, they do have to slightly... Uh, uh, remember that there's a there's a broader issue. The things that that, that worry me, everything that has been unearthed, uh, is either scandalous or just mind-numbingly stupid and should be fixed. So let's agree on all of that. But equally, the thing that we have to remember out of all at this at the end of it is that we have to have a functioning, confident public service broadcaster. We are in an era of. Uh, where very dark forces are attempting to poison public debate across Europe. You saw the Guardian story at the week uh, yesterday about the way in which uh, Russia has weaponized social media in Germany. Germany. This is happening here too. Uh, We have to have uh, a a lean, efficient, uh, transparent RTE at the end of it. But most importantly, we have to have a functioning public service broadcaster. And the bigger issue that's go- that is uh, is not getting the, the potential or the coverage uh, that it, it deserves, it's what's happening with the licence fee. We see uh, government uh, being uh, divided about the future, and that's fair enough because people are trying to figure out uh, the best way ahead. The broadband charge idea seemed to me to be the best uh, idea that I've How heard. do you flog that politically? How do you flog that to punters on a doorstep yeah, when you're coming into elections? No say I'm cares. costing you 150 there's, quid a year on your broadband. No way. Water charges, kind of trying yeah. to trying to sell that again. Except that. except that uh, Vodafone will cut off your broadband if you don't pay them. So if you if if you want a way, but uh, this was the Irish water threat back in the day. We'll cut off your water. That didn't fly. Yeah, that was a state company, and water is uh, a necessity for life. Uh, access to YouTube is not. Well, you unless know? you're well, 15, 13 or 14, it, it is, I'll yeah, tell no, you. They'd pick but, it over water, no, I'd say, to be honest. There's no good way of getting money out of the public, you know. Um, uh, what was the, the French minister that the, the art of being a finance minister is the art of plucking a goose, you know. Um, so we have to figure out a way. Uh, RTE needs funding. I don't want a situation to uh, uh, come out of all of this in years to come where I think uh, ministers have a direct control and a daily or yearly influence on the actions of RTE because they control directly their purse strings. Does it matter that much whether or not they have direct control? Because ultimately they can control the setting of the licence fee, which is a capacity to control the organisation by uh, mild extension. So what difference if it's ring fence taxation funding or straight out of the exchequer versus a fee? Because it, it becomes part of the budgetary process and the involvement between officials and ministers is going to be closer. And you think it would be that insidious? It would have that it, big it an effect on the journalism? Insidious. And, and, uh, and, and that is regardless of who's in power, whether it's Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil uh, or anybody else. I wouldn't trust any of them um, uh, near it because politician, the, the relationship between um, a state broadcaster um, uh, and and government should always be one where there is a certain amount of aggression and a good deal of hate. 
Well, to this, Lise, we were talking about this uh, last week and David Davenpower, formerly of, of uh, RT, formerly um, one of the, the uh, presenters of, of, indeed, yes. of, of Morning Ireland. <laughs> in mates, maybe um, as well. But David Davenpower was, we were asking about the, we're talking about the, um, back in the day, 2013, when the, this exact issue was being mooted again about there being a media charge. And he pointed out that what actually pushed it off the political agenda was the water charges. That water charges came in, it created such a kerfuffle that everybody thought, let us not go down that road again. So there has to be some level of political capacity to deliver this. Meanwhile, we discover that there is an issue now to do with redundancy, a, a two-tier system of redundancy within uh, RTE, with questions being asked about the nature of redundancies given to senior people. Isn't that exactly the kind of thing that makes it politically impossible to put in any charge of any kind when you have a context like that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's you're absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> because it's very hard to occupy the high moral ground if you've been clearly sort of shoved off to off it with you know with revelations like this um, and the, the revelation is that a senior uh, a member of RT senior management w- left on a redundancy package but the position that she departed remained remain. so what was redundant yes exactly and anything that's that's you know that might smell of trying to pull a fast one or the kind of the old what they used to call in the old days kind of cute horror behaviour um, you know if you're trying to Occupy that high moral ground that you've been shown or climb back onto it. You're just going to be just, you know, the government are just going to look at you going, tidy up your own house first. And how dare you come to us and try to hold us to account? So you always have this. And my mark is completely right. You, I think that the separation has to, they have to clean up the house. They have to show that there's full accountability. There's so much that's still, and I know Mark is saying everybody's bored with it, but he's also saying, and he's correct, that you, you do need a, a functioning national broadcaster. Um, so it's it does look a little bit like navel gazing, but it has to be done completely in the public because if the only way they could get credibility back is to actually say, okay, all our we've now hung out all all those lines are full of all our dirty washing. There's nothing we're not hiding anything mm-hmm. because so many times mm-hmm. as you have, have politicians sat in a, in a studio out in mm-hmm. Montrose. Mm-hmm. Denying there's been a cover-up, denying that there's been special... I'm I'm not arguing against public disclosure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was getting a bit of animation for this in a row. You're right. (laughs) Oh, have one for the crack. Don't let me stand in your way. Well, on a a similarly politically sensitive um, uh, topic, um, thankfully TDs apparently, Mark, the news is that having been living on the clippings of tin for so long... They're in for possibly a pay rise, as I understand it, from <laughs> 98 okay. grand a year to 110? Yeah, well, okay, let, let me be the middle-aged groucher. We, we, we can't have... Uh, I, I hate uh, uh, the, the stories when they're presented in this fashion because... Factually. You could, you could have put... No, it's, it's a factual story, but it is... Uh, it, we have a situation where... Uh, p- politicians are tied into the public pay deal. They're regarded as every everybody else. They get the same increases as everybody else. We either want that situation or we want the previous situation, which we spent years complaining about, where their salaries were decided by other means. We cannot have life everywhere. We want one rule or we want another rule. And if if every public sector worker is getting 10.5% over the next ten, uh, two and a half years, and I'm sure I can't be the only person in the private world uh, thinking that my salary isn't going to go up by 10 and a half percent over the next two and a half years. Um, but so, you know, there, there's obviously issues in terms of um, uh, probably equity and fairness in that regard. But, you know, if they're, if they're a public servant, then you treat them the same or you don't treat them the same. Make your choice. 
Well, there was a, uh, I remember reading Warren Buffett talking about how to handle inflation. He said the way you deal with inflation instantly is you take every member of Senate and Congress and you make their salaries inversely proportional to the rate of inflation and they will end it straight away that week. (laughs) What about the issue of ultimately the government being the counterparty in the negotiations around these public servant salaries from which they then benefit if there is a raise? Uh, You know, I mean... I mean, the, the alternative to that is that you find some sort of utterly independent process which is appointed by government and give them the job to negotiate with unions. At some point in, in, in a democratic system, we have to have some moderate degree of trust. Uh, you know, is every a member of, of the Oireachtas worth the salary that they're worth today? 110 grand, just to say or, it again. 110 grand. Yeah, or the basically. salary that they're worth after the pay rise? No, they're not. Uh, the same uh, judgment uh, could be made probably of every organisation in the state. And at the end of the day, it is the public who decide who they put into the place. Yeah, 53106 at a cost of 30 cent or 087-1400-106 Yes, please. Wow, that was impressive. Um, That's very fast. Nobody. Uh, yeah, just to, as well though, uh, not every TD might necessarily welcome the story as well because there is a possibility there will be a general election this year. There is a possibility. There are some talk that they might even try and wrap it in. I know I'm not necessarily saying it's the case, but that they will wrap it in with the local and general elections this summer or they will go in the autumn. And really, nobody, no TD wants to be knocking on the door and hearing the look at you, it's looking after yourselves again. You know, you've got a big pay rise and I'm blah, blah, blah. Many of them absolutely fair points, but it's not necessarily you don't want to be knocking on doors maybe on the back of a pay rise. There are a number of other things that are significant news this weekend. One of them being Donald Trump being ordered to pay E. Jean Carroll 83.3 million euro or million dollars for having defamed her subsequent to sexually assaulting her. Uh, We'll be talking uh, to Larry Donnelly, University of Galway Law Lecture out at 10 o'clock about that. There is also the the stunning news of our Eurovision um, entry, which surprisingly during the break, um, at least was very positive about, which I wasn't expecting. But we are going to be talking to Eurovision expert uh, Mairead Ronan about that after the break. But the one bit of news that I know Mark has been chomping at the bit to address (laughs) is that Dahi O'Shea has, according to a full page ad in, I think, the... Uh, is it the Times Day or the Examiner? I think it must be the Examiner. Mm. He is one of the Cork people of the year. Well, I mean, I, I think it proves that Ireland can face the challenges of immigration. Speaking as a Cork, speaking as a Corkman, the words of Irving Berlin did rather come to mind this morning. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. So, as a as a Corkman, I can but welcome him to the club. Oh, well, well, as as a, do, a proud dub, I've done a mile from an award. Now I have to say personally, but there you go. Well, we we express our, our congratulations to uh, Dahi on both his new county and his award. Mark Hennessy, Ireland and Britain editor with the Irish Times, journalist Lee Han. Thank you both very much. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at 9. On News Talk.